Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, today I'll be preaching my first sermon I've ever I've taught Revelation, but I've never preached on it. So, also the first sermon I've ever done just on hell and heaven. So this should be fun. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus, right? Uh, revelation 20. I did change it a little bit. We will not be going all the way through 20 uh, to verse 27 in chapter 21, just to verse 8. But we will start in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white... Actually, please stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we're starting our study this morning, not only in the end of a new book, but in the end of the book. That is, we're considering verses from the last book of the Bible that in part describe the end of the age and the consummation of another. Therefore, I I just want to offer a little context. First, I need to just briefly say that I don't think Revelation in total refers to future events. Most of what happened occurred in our past. It was future for the original audience, but not for us. The bulk of Revelation is closely tied to judgment, in particular the judgment of Israel and Jerusalem, 
and the comfort of a fledgling church. So many of the events described in the book have to do with everything leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Revelation, Revelation isn't just some heavenly drama, but it's a commentary on real events that happen in history. Some future, but mostly past. Second, Revelation, like most apocalyptic writings in Scripture, leans heavy on figurative language. It uses metaphors and types and the like to communicate concepts that otherwise would be quite difficult to understand. That isn't to say that we shouldn't take Revelation literal per se. It simply means we should read it according to its genre. For example, Psalm 61.3 says, For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. That doesn't mean that God is an actual tower. He isn't a building. He isn't made of brick and cement. He's God. But he is like a tower in that he gives security and advantage to those who dwell in him. It's figurative language. Jesus isn't a chicken, a mother hen, right? These are pictures. So we want to keep that in mind as, as we go through it. We see lots of that sort of language in Revelation. This is true of our text. It, unlike other parts of Revelation, is undoubtedly speaking about a future event, about something that has yet to happen. It's describing the day of judgment and the immediate eternal destinations of all those involved. That is, it's describing hell and heaven, and it's doing so often through figurative language. Now, figurative language is to aid us. It's God condescending to us. We are peering into things that are hard for us to comprehend. That is why we're given pictures and analogies and metaphors. It helps our small brains begin to grasp things that otherwise would be beyond us at this point. Acknowledging that scripture uses the ling- this sort of language isn't being liberal, it's being faithful. So as I point out these things that I think are largely figurative, please keep that in mind that I'm well aware of those who seek to undermine the testimony of Scripture by hiding behind a literary approach to the Bible. These men will tell you that hell and heaven aren't real, that they are just figures of the ideal mindset or merely a teaching device to urge us away from bad behavior towards good behavior or whatever. But those men are wrong. Hell and heaven are real places. They are places that mankind will exist, body and soul, forever and ever. They are physical realities, as will become very clear in a moment. The figurative language is only employed to help us begin to grasp the very real reality of hell and heaven. So with that in mind, let's dive into our text. First, looking at verse 11 through 13, we have this scene of all men being brought before a great white throne to be judged by God according to their deeds. I think it's clear from the text that this isn't just a judgment of the wicked. It focuses on the wicked, but it's not just a judgment of the wicked, but all mankind, unbeliever and believer alike. We see this demonstrated in the fact that there is a separating happening in the judgment based on the books, one of which is the book of life. Those not in the book of life are sentenced to the second death in the lake of fire. Those found in the book of life enter into paradise in chapter 21. Now, these books are not literal books, but a metaphor representing God's unfailing memory. The Greek tense used in this passage is one that suggests divine action and opening the books. All human deeds are being opened by God. God's opening them up. The books are laid out. And this picks up an idea way back in Revelation 4, um, verses 5 through 6. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning. 
and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This is giving us a picture of a throne in heaven sitting on something like a pane of glass. From this throne, God looks down and can see everything happening on earth, right? You can see everything that's happening. The idea is reinforced by the presence of these four living creatures covered in eyes. And there's eyes all over them. Nothing will escape God's attention. He sees all, right? The books are open. Now, these books being open emphasizes two realities of the judgment. First, God's righteousness. And second, the public revelation or public um, presentation. Regarding God's righteousness, no one will be left to wonder why they are judged. Their deeds are recorded in the books that will be open, and they are judged on that basis. Notice that there are books, more than one. It's plural. This is to communicate of the detailed nature of God's perfect record. Listen, listen to these verses. Matthew 12 says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak or tweet or type, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Romans 2. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. All your secrets. Ecclesiastes um, 3.17 I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be evil. And then 1 Corinthians 4, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, uh, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. So everything. Everything. Regarding the public revelation or presentation, everything ever done will pub be publicly exposed. Mark 4.22 says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it should come to light. Now, while it is true that everyone will be judged, not everyone will be judged in the identical way or the same way. Before the great white throne, the unbeliever will stand naked without anything but their deeds. But those washed by the blood of the Lamb will be clothed in white robes of Christ's righteousness. Revelation 7 gives us this picture again in God's throne room. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So David Chilton, he puts it well. He says, The point of the text is not, of course, salvation by works. The point is instead damnation by works. No one will be justified by their works. Salvation belongs to God. In other words, no one will enter heaven based on their works. The path, that pathway only leads to the lake of fire. This doesn't mean that the works of Christians, that they don't matter. They do. The judgment of works results in differing degrees of punishments for unbelievers, as well as differing degrees of blessings for believers. 
And I'm not totally sure how that works. I'm not sure how hell can be made more hellish or heaven more heavenly. Nonetheless, that is the teaching of Scripture, and it's meant to encourage us in our faithful labors. Our, our confession, the Westminster Confession, sums it up this way. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account for their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now earlier I had stressed that hell and heaven are real physical places. They aren't just a mindset. They aren't just your worst nightmares and best dreams. Probably the worst example I can think of this is, uh, is that Robin Williams movie that came out years ago, What Dreams May Come. And it gives a real common wicked idea about heaven and hell that we created. No, these are places created by our Lord. They aren't. They are actual destinations where people will physically exist forever. In John 5, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The judgment we just read about immediately follows what we refer to as the general resurrection. Uh, it's general because it includes everyone. It's a resurrection because the bodies of all men are reconstituted and join again with their soul, which has been temporarily separated from their bodies. So in this text, it says, um, in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice. People's souls don't reside in graves or in tombs. Their dead bodies do. So what it's talking about is the regathering and assembling of all bodies of all people at the end of age. Right? Everyone that's ever existed Right? There's some bones in graves right now, but other people are, like Cain, probably pretty close to dust wherever his remains lie. Right? They're all, their bodies can all be reconstituted and brought together at the resurrection, both the unrighteous and the righteous. Mankind was made to exist forever. And sin hasn't changed that fact. Everyone, everyone will exist forever. But sin also, in an ultimate sense, hasn't changed what it means to be man. Man is a body-soul composite. We're both. We're both spiritual and physical. Death temporarily separates the two, but God's design hasn't been altered. Mankind will exist forever in a physical state. There's no androgynous spirits floating around in eternity. There's an intermediate state right now where for some time our spirit, whether it be in hell or in God's presence um, exists, but it will be joined again with the body. Hence, we have the resurrection. Now, this resurrection is, is different in its destination. One is to eternal judgment and the other to eternal life, but they're both physical realities. For the believer, this is a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful promise. The fall ravages our bodies. We are physically marred. Some of us are born with poor eyesight, various diseases, and other bodily ailments. These bring pain and difficulty into our lives from the get-go. However, all of us suffer increasingly as we age and our bodies begin to fall apart, to fail. 
bad joints, bad backs, bad teeth, high blood pressure, crushed nerves, failing minds, and so on. Entropy gets us all. All things fall apart on a fallen world. And as we begin, or as we age, we begin to live in a world of pain. So much so, many towards the end of life simply want to die to be removed from that state of pain. I've seen people there. I'm sure you have. There are people that will beg for death to get rid of the pain. Therefore, the resurrection is a great promise for those of you who suffer, right? Which is everyone eventually. There's a time coming when your broken body will be mended. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about, or then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This, of course, is what's being talked about in Revelation chapter 21, um, verses 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This resurrection will fix our bodies. No more tears, death, crying, or pain. These things will not exist as a distraction in heaven. And aren't they distractions down here on earth? Pain is a double-bladed sword. On one hand, it makes us long for life to come. And that is how God will use pain as a tool of sanctification. On the other hand, it makes being productive and reflecting on the Lord very difficult. The sensations can be overwhelming. Any of you that's been just on laying on your bed, just writhing in pain, right? Some sort of injury, know what I'm talking about. You know, you only can have the most basic thoughts sometimes. And chronic pain uh, can wear us all down, but not in heaven. There we will be made perfect so that we can enjoy the unfettered and unlimited fellowship with our God. It, It says God himself will be among them. One of the blessings of heaven is being made physically whole. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies will be glorified. That is, they'll be superior in quality of the bodies we had prior to our death. I once worked with a large, heavy set man that had a picture of a much skinnier fit man on his desk. I said, who is that? And he replied, that's me. It was an old picture of him when he was 20 or so. And he said, I was impressive. And I said, you, you were. <laughs> you were impressive. Um, not anymore. Um, but our bodies in their most, in their most physically fit shape are a dull, comparison to what our glorified bodies will be like 
Understand that. Your best days aren't behind you if you're a Christian. The beauty of this fallen world is fleeting over and over. Scripture says that. Our culture is obsessed with the body. It's a weird time we live in. On one hand, we have to make an argument for the body against the Gnostic for everyone's spirits. And on the other hand, we see the biggest loser, right? Where people finally are freed. It's, it's redemptive if you ever watch that show. And they're finally, they're in the best shape of their life and now they'll be happy, right? Well, you're going to die, right? It's all going to break. It's all going to wear down. No one can stay young looking forever, but believers can be resurrected into a glorified body. So we need to look forward, not backwards. And I think that should be especially encouraging for Christian women with the intense, the intense pressure of a decadent age that wants you to look like a little girl instead of a woman that's aging. Looking for inner beauty, because that you can carry into heaven where you get that glorified body. And men, oh, we need this too, right? But that's just because we live in an effeminate age where now sins that were common to women have become common to men. But we all can be encouraged that whatever you once were, right, that's nothing compared to what you'll be when God resurrects you. We will be with God in our glorified body in a new perfected earth. Revelation 21 says, oh, excuse me, actually, now the biggest blessing of heaven, um, though, is our fellowship with God. Uh, God walked with them in the garden, but in heaven he will dwell with us. We will be with God in a glorified body in a new perfected earth. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned. For her husband. Then in 21.5 it says. And he who sits on the throne said. Behold. I am making all things new. And he said. Write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. I will give to the one. Who thirsts from the spring. Of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes. Will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Heaven isn't some cartoonish, ethereal plane full of clouds and harps. It is a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells among his people. It is physical and it will blow your mind. The colors will be more colorful. The smells will be a million times better than the sweetest scent you've ever breathed in. The sounds, those perfect angelic choirs, will be more amazing than any concert you've ever attended. And all the pleasures that flow from the right hand of God will never, ever end. We will drink the water of life forever and ever. And our fellowship with God will be perfect. Be perfect. What an inheritance we have. This isn't true for the unbeliever, though. In Revelation 21.8, it says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The unbeliever will be joined with his body and tossed into hell. 
into the lake of fire. Hell's described a lot of different ways in Scripture. The New Testament describes hell as a bottomless pit, the abyss, earlier in chapter 20 of Revelation, a lake, darkness, death, destruction, everlasting torment, uh, where the worms keeps gnawing away at you, like corruption, a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, and even a place of graduated punishment. Hell's terrible. It's horrific. We cannot make hell sound worse than it actually is. Everything is an understatement when it comes to hell. Everything is. Think of that. If you're not a fire and brimstone church, you're not a church. That's it. This is scripture. This is what scripture says. I know people can abuse this in weird ways, but it's an abuse not to talk about it. Not to bring it up. We need to warn people. Now, hell and heaven do have something in common. And it's the presence of God that makes them what they are. Heaven is heaven because God's fatherly covenantal presence is there with his adopted sons. We're in his presence. We're counted among his sons. That's what makes it so wonderful. There is no heaven without God. That's why you don't have personal heavens. Right? Heaven is where God is. This, brethren, is a foretaste of heaven. God dwells in the midst of his people. Heaven is breaking into this world and finds its consummation at the end of the age. It's a foretaste. It's fellowship with God and those who love him. Hell, on the other hand, is hell because of God's wrathful presence brought to bear on all hard-hearted rebels. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. (coughs) For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing, which shall come from the presence of the Lord. That's where it comes from, the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Again, I must emphasize that hell is a physical place. The unbeliever is given a resurrected body, but probably not glorified in the same way that ours is. But the resurrection for them is a terrible thing. Jonathan Edwards wrote it this way. The souls of the wicked shall be brought up out of hell, though not out of misery, and shall very unwillingly enter into their bodies, which will be but eternal prisons to them. Samuel Davies takes it even further. The bodies of the wicked will also be improved, but their improvement will all be terrible and vindictive. Their capacities will be thoroughly enlarged, but then it will be that they may be made capable of greater misery. They will be strengthened, but it will be that they may bear the heavier load of torment. Their sensations will be more quick and strong, but it will be that they may feel the more exquisite pain. They will be raised Immortal, that they may not be consumed by everlasting fire or escape punishment by dissolution or annihilation. In short, their augmented strength, their enlarged capacities, their immortality will be their eternal curse. They would willingly exchange them for the fleeting duration of a fading flower or the faint sensations of an infant. The only power they would rejoice in is in that of self-annihilation, but it will not be granted to them. God made us to live for 
forever. And maybe I should say exist forever. In a state of life or in a state of death. And this is an aspect of resurrection I had never considered prior to preaching today. The Christian with bodily ailments looks forward to the resurrection for his body will be renewed. However, the non-Christian should fear the resurrection because his body will ache in a way that he never conceived was possible. Think of those unbelievers that want to die to escape the physical pains of this life. Perhaps you remember the 80s and 90s with Jack Kravokian, I you say his name, Dr. Death, right? Assisted suicide that was seen as a mercy. Well, for the unbeliever, when they die, if death is not an escape of pain for them, right? It won't happen. The worst pains in this life would seem like pleasure compared to the horrors that come in the lake of fire. It's one reason we would want to preserve life. That's why when you go to the bedside of a dying friend, you say, do you have any sins to confess? Can we pray to the Lord? What do you know? Just ask them. Pray with them. This is one reason why we should be very careful in dulling our senses when we're near the end. It's something that requires discernment. But it is, it is common for us to just medicate ourselves into, into death slowly. And those, those fleeting moments could be moments of clarity and repentance. God is not mocked. He's holy and just. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will not. Either your sin was dealt with on the cross, or it will be dealt with in eternity, or in eternity of hell forever. So what's the application? How should we live now? Let me, let me quote the confession to you. It's very good. This is chapter 33. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment. And here's the reason. Both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, Come quickly. Amen. So may this move you to repentance if you're an unbeliever. If you're playing church, God sees. He knows. The books will be open. May this strengthen you in your adversity. If you're going through those physical pains right now. If you're going through those anguish of difficult relationships and longing for heaven, may this encourage you. May it shake you from your sleep if you're a believer that does not take your walk with the Lord serious. If you think there's some sort of pleasure in this life that even compares to what lies ahead, may it wake you up, sleeper. The day of the Lord will come. None will escape it. May that be a blessing for you and not a curse. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, we now only stand in your presence because of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It's through him alone that we can have confidence. It's through our advocate who's washed us 
and put us in white robes that we have confidence to call you Abba. It's through him that we can actually look forward to the end of the age. We can look forward to resurrection. We can look forward to being there before your white uh, throne of judgment. It's only through him. Oh, thank you so much that you have mercy on sinners, that you breathe new life into us, and that you call us just by faith and not by works. Father, we pray that this truth would not lead to slackness, but would move us to holy living, to desire to please you, that our, our works do matter, and you will bless us and reward us for them. Father, I pray too for anyone here that is hiding sin in their heart, that has made peace with their sin, that they would quickly repent, for none of us know when we will be brought account or brought before you and have to give an account. So, Father, we pray we keep short records, we'd be quick to confess, and that our confidence would be in Jesus, and we would look forward to that day when everything is made new. We pray this name of your Son. Amen.